The following program was pre-recorded. Welcome to Radioactive, a show for grassroots activists and community builders. I'm Laura Jones, joined in our virtual studio by... I'm Nick Burns, and it's nice to virtually see you, Laura. You and I, I don't get to be on the air much together these days. I know, but we're going to dip into the archives later for back when you and I were co-hosting together. Yes. So that's yeah, we coming got a, up. We have a clip from when we had uh, Jessica Bruder, who wrote the book Nomadland, that became the Academy Award-winning film. I know... Many people couldn't watch the awards ceremony for multitudinous reasons. Because it was but, unwatchable. Uh, we're going to play a clip. <laughs> we're going to play a clip from that interview. Also on the show tonight, another author, Nicole Walker, has a new book of braided essays out: "Processed Meats: Essays on Food, Flesh, and Navigating Disaster." This is out from Tory House Press. And Nicole Walker will be doing a reading tomorrow night, Thursday, 6 p.m. at King's English Bookstore. And I had a chance to talk with her about the book, which is really kind of an autobiography about cooking and place and food. She'll be in conversation with Todd Davies, author of Jam Today, A Diary of Cooking. And I'm interested in all of that, Nick. Still to come as well. Poetry still happens. It's National Poetry Month. We'll have a conversation I recorded with Utah's own Ashley Finley. But first, let's do rallies and resources. And we have special guests today, Nick. And our first is Felicia Maxfield-Barrett of the Utah Council for Citizen Diplomacy, which next week has its two-part finale Tipping Point Lecture Series. Felicia, how you doing? I'm great. Thanks for inviting me today. So this is part of your ongoing lecture series, and it's mm -hmm. really where national tips into international. Set it up for us, and then we'll talk about how people can uh, participate. Yeah, yeah. So with our World Affair Lecture Series, it's always been focused on what is going on in the world. Um, you know, what what should we be aware of and how does it impact us here in Utah? Um, but what we've noticed, especially as of late, is that there's a lot of domestic affairs that are taking place that are now spilling into the international arena, which is why we named it the tipping point. Um, so we're really excited about this one, and, which is an exploration of racism in the U.S. and beyond. So it's a it's a two night lecture series really to get the most out of it is we want you to participate in both the May 5th and the May 6th event. It's virtual right now. So six to seven. Um, if you register, we will go ahead and send you the Zoom link. Um, it, it's free. It's open to the public. We really do want people there so that they can be part of the conversation. Um, what is really exciting are the speakers that we have. So on the first night, May 5th, um, we have uh, author Richard Rooker, who is, he wrote a book called Buses Are Coming. It was uh, released last month, um, as well as Charles Person, who was a freedom writer back in the 60s. And the, it, really, the interview is focused on Charles, who is going to talk about his experience um, of being a freedom writer and what that means for modern day activism in, in every aspect. Why, you know, and this ties in so beautifully with who we are as an organization, that idea that everybody has the right and responsibility to shape relations. And it's done as simple as one handshake at a time, or it can be expanded to one bus ride at a time, one conversation at a time, one meal at a time. Um, then the second night, we are going to be talking about how um, racism in America has spilled into the idea of nationalism across the globe. We're certainly seeing it as the, a, a huge problem 
Um, and it seems like people feel like they've got the right to embrace nationalism in many different forms, but it really is something that we need to talk about these days. Um, you know, so us as being a nonprofit, convening people together, talking about international affairs, certainly want to open up our forums to talk about these domestic and international relations. Um, and the speaker is Judith Goldstein. She's the founder and executive director of Humanity in Action Incorporated. So this is May 5th and 6th online, 6 to 7 p.m. You just need to sign up so you can get the Zoom link, right? Exactly. Where do people do that? Um, Visit our website, utahdiplomacy.org, and then there's links to the Eventbrite page to register for these events. Laura, we should just accent that, that what what these folks, utahdiplomacy.org, are doing, this connecting of national affairs across borders and into the international arena, I think too often most of our dominant media forget that point and tend to really create news that's far too far too much of a tunnel vision look at the US only. So yeah. I'm pleased all y'all are doing this uh, in this two-part series. The fifth and the sixth sounds spot on to me. Felicia Maxfield Barrett from Utah Council for Citizen Diplomacy. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. We'll do links in the show notes. And if you haven't heard Charles Person's story from Charles Person, uh, radioactive listeners, you have another chance. Back in January, Loki Mulholland and the Uncomfortable Truth podcast shared a conversation with Charles Person, and it's very, very powerful. You're gonna, you're gonna not want to miss this with Utah Council for Citizen Diplomacy. Nick, you have our next guest. Yeah, Darcy Shortkoff. Thank you very much. And I guess this is another one of those international events that that people tend to forget in the United States, and that would be May Day. Um, I'm old enough to remember when there was all this fever and 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 rancor, if you will, because of all the tanks rolling through uh, Moscow. But May Day is far more than that. And you've got an event, uh, May Day Fundraiser 2021, Make the Rich Pay. Gotta love the title. Yeah, it's a... Uh... On on the point, um, yeah, I, I love the um, <laughs> I love the emphasis on on internationalism because May Day really is International Workers Day, um, and we're, what we're celebrating is is international solidarity with the people who produce the things that society needs to function. So, what can people expect? This is a, this is Saturday afternoon, two p.m. Correct? Mm-hmm, at the Sugarhouse Park uh, Pavilion. Um, it's going to be sort of a, a celebration as well as a fundraiser. Um, I'm a member of a Freedom Road Socialist Organization. Um, we're an organization that's, uh, our roots are in the 1960s and 70s um, in the struggles for uh, labor, African-American struggles, LGBTQ movements, um, anti-intervention and student movements. Um, we've been around for a while and with the rising um, social unrest of the last few years, our organization has grown and um, we're trying to start a national office. And what are you pushing for? I, I, I hesitate to use the word demands, but what are you demanding? Yeah, so we've got four main points. Um, we're calling for the uh, economic relief for all workers. That includes things like unemployment benefits, uh, passing the PRO Act and raising the minimum wage. We've got uh, legalization for all immigrants, it's creating a path to uh, citizenship for undocumented uh, people. We are calling to abolish ICE and to close the concentration camps at the border, which are still there. Um, we've got one of our big ones is community control of the police. Um, 
that involves uh, ending unsheltered abatements, uh, stopping uh, evictions, and pushing for housing as opposed to jail. Wow, and, then, and you know, some of us probably mistakenly thought we did have community control of the police, right? <laughs> some of us probably yeah. thought that's how it's supposed to work. Oh, it's confusing, but um, you know, we we stand <laughs> by communities have the right to determine what um, justice and what safety looks like in their own communities. Uh, if you have people coming in from outside, it's it, if you don't have that accountability, um, the accountability needs to be to the people who are being affected by these things, as we've seen in the police violence. And, recent. I, and I'm really pleased to hear that word because so often we hear about justice, but I think really it's a, it's a question of, of accountability. So for folks who want to find out more, where can they find out more about your event and your group? Yeah, uh, so you can go to frso.org. Um, that's our organization. Uh, our news is uh, fightbacknews.org. Um, and you can check out our Facebook page. We've got our May Day Fundraiser 2021, Make the Rich Pay, People's Agenda. Um, go check that out, and we'd love to see you all there. And again, we'll put that in our show notes. People can find that online. But Darcy, thank you very much, and best wishes for May Day. Thank you for having me. Yeah, this is Saturday, 2 p.m., Sugar House Park. And again, online, we'll put the we'll put it in the show notes, Laura. All right, Nick. So now we're going to move into the vault because back in 2017, you and I had a chance to talk to this author, Jessica Bruder, who wrote this little book about nomad land, about living in your RV and uh, making your way across the country and surviving uh, largely as a senior. And guess what? I didn't watch the Academy Awards. I hear it was unwatchable. <laughs> But it was just really different. Yeah. It was different. It was very different. I heard Glenn Close did a great dance and some other things like that. But um, yeah. Nomad Lad won big. Nomad Lad won big. Uh, first woman of color to win the Academy Award. Again, the film took Best Picture and Best Director. Pretty amazing cinematography as well. And I, I know many, many listeners have probably seen the film. I actually haven't seen it yet, but I sure loved the book. And I think one of the things we should be aware of is that true to Hollywood, the movie tends to focus more on the individual. But when I read Jessica Bruder's book, I think she gets a little bit deeper into the societal impact. I mean, what is it that pushes these people to have to live on the road and work at Amazon and live in parks? So I'm glad we've got this clip. Here's that clip from the vaults of Radioactive. Our next guest, I'm guessing, might have some insight to uh, how our national parks are used by a certain segment of our population as they find themselves in nomad land. Here's Jessica Bruder. How are you, Jessica? I'm all right. How are you? Pretty good. I don't know if you heard us talking about the attempt by our own Congressman Rob Bishop to get the Antiquities Act, but I'm guessing in, oh, it did. in your research and all of that in the book, you stopped at many a national park, national monument. I did. I, I stayed in a national park last night. Actually, I'm, I'm on book tour and driving a camper van from Seattle to L.A. So I've, I've spent a lot of time in this van in parks and writing about um, some of the people who work there as campground hosts, which is one of many jobs that uh, folks, many who can't afford to retire and can't afford traditional housing, uh, have found themselves doing uh, in the wake of the Great Recession. So, Jessica Bruder, are you still driving around in Van Halen, your van? Or you've you've moved I am on. Sitting in Van Halen right ah, now. So uh, I did pull over. <laughs> oh, very good. No, thank you. We appreciate that. But but again, your book, Nomad Lads: Surviving America in the 21st Century. Uh, you teach in the Grad School of Journalism at Columbia. You've written for Harper's, New York Times, Washington Post, and now you have this book that you went on your road yourself to get to it. 
Um, so how did you get to this project? What prompted this? Yeah, I mean, it used to be that, uh, like many folks, when I saw RVers driving down the road, I assumed there go the last of the great pensioners. They're visiting Niagara Falls and Old Faithful, and, you know, isn't that sweet? And um, later on, I've, I, I tend to read quite a bit about labor and the erosion of workplace protections. And I had learned about a program at Amazon that was hiring RVers who couldn't afford to retire and were full-time on the road for pick-and-pack before the holidays, which is very hard work, particularly on older bodies. And I thought, well, this is really not something I expected to learn about. Um, dug further and found that it was part of an, a whole giant ecosystem involving many folks, uh, many of them at or past traditional retirement age, who are in a market where retirement finance has been gutted and right. minimum wage is seven twenty-five an hour and housing costs are going up. So we've got a lot of folks on the road these days. Yeah, I mean, on the one hand, your book really reminded me of George Packer's The Unwinding because you— you just tell these people's stories. Their stories speak for themselves. Um, like like we were mentioning, campground hosts. And then when the camp closes, you go work at Amazon for the season, and maybe you sell Christmas trees. But I really liked at the beginning of your of your book, you make a, a very clear distinction between houseless and homeless. Like you were just saying, these are people, they have homes, they're, they're pull-behind trailers, they're RVs, but not homeless in the sense of what people might think of. Yeah, and it's unfortunate that we we have such a huge stigma on the world on the word homeless in America right now. I mean, we are still in this period where, for so many years, home ownership in America was considered a mark of citizenship. I mean, tantamount to citizenship. And uh, I think while a lot of the population, in the wake of the housing collapse, uh, is waking up to the fact that there are different ways to live, there's still a lot of prejudice out there, and uh, some of the members of the community that I have been covering have faced that as well. So, yeah, they definitely don't want to be called homeless, and that's something I have tremendous respect for. Well, you write about one guy that's turned his Prius into a little camper with a place and everything. (laughs) But but would you say these folks are content or happy with this nomad kind of life? I think it's really complicated. I mean, happiness comes up a lot as an issue, and choice. Okay. Uh, Other people ask me, did they choose this? And... Uh, one of the first things people will tell you on the road is that they chose it. But then when you spend a week with them, a weekend, you hear about the foreclosure, you hear about the medical debt, you hear about the divorce, and you hear about the loss of the 401k. Okay, so interesting. while I do respect everybody's agency, I think it comes down to what some sociologists call constrained agency, where people want to live their lives and get up in the morning and have some degree of agency and don't want to see themselves as victims and, you know, bless them, they're out there doing it. Yeah, but it'd be easy to say this is Amazon's agency more than these people's agency. A couple minutes left. I was fascinated. You build the book a lot around Linda, and you start the book with Linda and her friend Sylvie Ann, and I wondered, what made you choose those two? Linda... Well, as a narrative journalist, you're working with people who let you stick around. (laughs) I mean, I followed Linda over the course of three years, and she's an incredible person, just patient, witty, resilient, uh, did not get sick of me, which or or didn't tell me she Uh did. And uh, Linda also had a dream, which for a journalist and somebody who works in narrative, as I do, made her incredibly compelling to follow. Linda's dream was to buy land and do this homestead. 
And even though the odds sometimes seem quite long, she pursued it doggedly. So for me, that really made her a compelling person to follow around. With some success, I would point out, for her. I don't want to spoiler it. <laughs> okay. No, that's very good. I thought it was a great read. I love that you just—these people pretty much tell their own stories, and you go from Quartzsite, Arizona, to the Amazon Camper Force, which to me sounds really depressing. What are you going to work on next? Okay, this is totally out of the blue, but there's a Harper story that came out a few months ago by my best friend and I, and we were the unintentional mules for the entire Snowden archive. So now for something entirely different, uh, I'll be working on something about the human right to privacy and about these analog networks behind uh, some big leaks. As a magazine piece or book? It started off as a Harper's Magazine uh-huh. piece, and it will be a short book for Verso. Oh, you want well, to come back and yeah. talk about that? Absolutely. Anytime. Super. <laughs> it's been a pleasure. So, Thank Jessica you. Bruder, the book is Nomad Lads, Surviving America in the 21st Century. Um, I found myself reading it in nomad fashion, which I almost never do. You know, reading some and then going to the middle and then reading the end. It's like your book invited me to be a nomad. So thank you for that. Well, thank you for wandering through it. Oh, my pleasure. It. Jessica Bruder, author of Nomadland from 2017 on Radioactive. And of course, Nomadland, the film, just this last weekend, went on to win Best Actress, Best Picture, and Best Director for Chloe Zhao, just the second ever woman to win Best Director and the first woman of color to get that award. And the Burns Report coming up with another author in just a bit. We'll be talking with... Uh, the woman who wrote uh, Processed Meats, Essays on Food, Flesh, and Navigating Disaster. Just give us a little tease. Do well, you her, eat, do you and do you guys agree on processed meats? Oh, we are all processed meats. That's what Nicole is getting at. We are processed by who we are, where we live, what we eat. Uh, but she's also interested in climate disaster. And what's fascinating is this book is really kind of an autobiography of braided essays. So she combines a discussion of swine flu with eating bacon and uh, being pregnant with botulism. It's really a pretty fascinating book, and it's also quite funny as well as being kind of heavy. Great conversation coming up. All right, that's still to come. But Nick, it's National Poetry Month. You and I are big fans of poets and poetry, but especially local poets. And I've got a conversation here to share with Utah's own Ashley Finley. Catching up with poet Ashley Finley, who was featured for her doula work, helping moms give birth, deal with giving birth um, in the slug in, in the February issue of Slug Mag. Congratulations on that. Thank you. Thank How you. has that been during the past year as a doula, as a poet? Tell me about your last year. Man, the last year has been... It's been all over the place, to be honest. <laughs> you know, I think... On one hand, you know, we we obviously everyone knows we've been faced with this like really challenging and in some ways tragic time. Um, But in other ways, I feel really blessed. I feel blessed that I'm able to be reminded of new life and I'm able to um, still create art (laughs) and like I'm I'm. I feel really lucky and blessed for, in that way. And also being able to see the ways in which like community fills in the gap, right? Like, like we see how we've kind of been let down by our 
our American system. And I've seen in the most beautiful ways, community holding each other. So, yeah. Well, I'd love to hear some of the poetry you'd like to share with us today, based on the year that was, based on current events, based on the poet's preference. What do you got? Yeah. Okay. So I have a poem and it's actually really interesting because this poem is going to be included in an anthology um, out of Tory House Press. And it's a whole anthology about a regenerative future and how we, we dream um, in that way. And so I, I wrote this poem with that dream in mind, especially what we with what we see going on in the news, you know, like this kind of open season on black and brown bodies. And I think it's really easy to get caught up in the grief, which I have definitely experienced this year. Um, but I think that it's also important to remember that that is that's like what the system is designed to do. It's designed to catch us up in the grief and the confusion and make us lose hope for the future. And so some of our best resistance and revolution work comes when we're able to, um, when we're able to dream and imagine and laugh and <laughs> dance. And so here is um, a poem that comes from that, uh, that feeling. And it's called A Prayer in Three Parts. And it starts off with two quotes, one quote from the Knapp Ministry, who you can follow on Instagram at the Knapp Ministry. And it says, we don't want a seat at the table, F the table. The table is full of oppressors. We want a blanket and a pillow down by the ocean. We want to rest. And the next quote is by our dear Lucille Clifton, which says, come celebrate with me that every day something has tried to kill me and has failed. Part one, the fruit burst between my teeth the juice trickles from my lips to my chin, dropping to my chest, deep red, as if there is a bullet wound, but there is no pain. My mother, 80 years old and gentler than she was in her previous years, looks at the moment on my chest, touches her own scar in that same place, and asks if I am okay. I do not know how to answer her, but I say, yes, mommy. I am okay anyway, and I want her to believe me. Part two, I talked to Brianna and Toyin every single day. We shared the same skin, the same sturdy bones, the same love for our mothers, all of us named by our ancestors and made sacred in one way or another. In this realm, we did not know each other, but as they have crossed into the next, we are sisters. I love you, sis. You deserved so much better. Rest, sweet ones. I will carry on the fight. And I know they hear me. Part three. I do not have a daughter of my own yet, 
but I must imagine her. Mahogany, bursting with laughter and love for the sweetness of ripe fruit. She will know how to find the Big Dipper by tracing her fingers on her own skin. She will smile at the earth and call it kin. Softness and ease will surround her. And she will pray as the sun rises and sets to all those who came before. To the ones who named her and the ones whose songs she carries in her heartbeat. And all of the pomegranates will burst for her. They will drip down her chin and off of her fingers and it will never be blood, and she will always be okay. Ashe. <laughs> I don't know if that makes up for all the snaps you've been missing over this last year, right? That was incredible. So when is this anthology coming out from Tory House Press? Um, I am not sure. It will be <laughs> sometime this year. They are amazing and are just dealing with you know, kind of the the ramifications of COVID-19 and doing their best to honor our work and still get the work out. But I promise as soon as I know, I will <laughs> let, I will send the info over. Well, on Tory House Press, a Utah nonprofit. Yeah. And put, put out great, uh, great stuff. And now soon to be some Ashley Finley work in this anthology. Um, what what else have you been able to do to keep yourself busy or engaged in that creation process of your own? Because yeah. I know doula work, you're helping someone else birth a life into the world. Right. Um, you also do a lot in the community as an advocate and activist. So um, yeah. have you found that your poetry is that much more essential to you over this last year as an outlet or a refuge? Yeah, I think... I, I think I definitely have found myself more as a writer and it's become, I mean, I feel like my work has always been pretty personal, but you're right in that it has become an outlet, right? Like I find myself writing things that they don't feel like poems. They don't even feel like journal entries. They just feel, they just feel right. And then I go back and read them and say, you know, this is, this is my heart. And it feels really beautiful to have an outlet because when you are recognized as like a poet, right? Like a lot of times that puts pressure to create. And when you're writing, you're writing for something, you know, or when you're speaking, you're speaking for some sort of thing. But I think this last year has really helped me reconnect to um, the catharsis of writing, just just to be able to express myself. And sometimes I call it like putting down my prayers and that's kind of how this poem came, <laughs> came to be. Um, yeah, so that, that and movement, a lot of uh, dancing, a lot of yoga. Um, I guess you could call it yoga. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of just trying to get what's inside out in yeah. whichever way possible. So Ashley, how can people catch up with you on your poetry or your doula work? Yeah. So you can find me at um, Instagram at find a Finley. Um, and then uh, or on my doula page at sacred sister doula. 
Um, and you can also find my website at findingfinley.com or sacredsisterdoula.com. Things coming up. One thing that is coming up is that's really exciting is that I am partnering with Wasatch Community Gardens, Tory House Press, and the Mobile Moon Co-op. And I believe um, the University of Utah as well to be part of a six-part uh, writing workshop. So my um, installment is actually this Thursday at 6 p.m. And you can find the link to register at any one of those <laughs> um, <laughs> locations. And so we'll be talking about, uh, we'll be writing about um, our personal relationships to the land and how we can create sort of a symbiotic relationship of healing and restoration um, to the land. Talk about a, a way to wrap up not only National Poetry Month, but Earth Month, too. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, I'm, yeah, I'm so excited. I'm so excited because it's something that I think was so necessary, right? Especially now when we're all so detached and some of our only refuge is getting outside and, and deepening our relationship with the earth. Ashley Finley, uh, one of Utah's local poets, just love what she does. Check the show notes for links to her work. So we're going to get into your conversation after the break, Nick, with? With Nicole Walker. We're going to talk about her new book of braided essays, Processed Meats, Essays on Food, Flesh, and Navigating Disaster. Coming up next on KRCL 90.9 FM, your community connection. Support for KRCL comes from the Ute Land Trust whose mission is to help heal people, community, and the world around us. More information at utelandtrust.org. This is Radioactive on your community connection, 90.9 FM. I am Nick Burns. I am going to talk next with Nicole Walker. She's the author of Processed Meats, Essays on Food, Flesh, and Navigating Disaster. This is her most recent book about food, about place, and about climate disaster. And her essays are autobiographical. This book reads like an autobiography, but it is a series of braided essays that are at times funny and at times quite serious. The book is out from Tory House Press. We love to feature Tory House Press on the show. Nicole Walker, welcome to the show. And before we get started talking about processed meats, I want to let everyone know you'll be doing a reading tomorrow. This is 6 p.m., April 29th, King's English Virtual. Folks can tune in and enjoy that tomorrow. But for now, let's talk about your book. Hi, Nick. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, KRCL is my favorite radio station in all the land, and I'm so oh. thrilled to be a part of the show. So thank you. Oh, great start. I appreciate that. Um, your book is out from Tory Press. You've got a reading tomorrow at King's English, a virtual reading. We're going to give folks all the information, put that in the show notes. But Tory Press, you know, they publish books that sort of, at, they meet at that intersection between environmental advocacy and, and literary arts. Um, but I think for your book, I really want to start with the title, Processed Meats. Essays on Food, Flesh, and Navigating Disaster. And it seems to me, and I'll go out on a limb here, aren't we, and, and perhaps this is what you're getting at, aren't we humans just all processed meats ourselves? Exactly, Nick. That's exactly what the premise of the book is. <laughs> and the idea that, you know, as, as 
we, we're all flesh. We are, you know, the connection that we have to, to the land and to animals is all, to me, it, it's, it's, a, a, it's a horizontal plane, not a vertical one. We don't live above the animals, although we do eat them as though we, we are, but we are all interconnected. And the idea of, of processing is, is also more than, you know, just, just turning something into something else. But that idea of transformation is definitely part of it. But this book is really about how you process these big things that happen to you in life, or at the time they seem really big, or in your imagination, they seem really big. And how do you eventually incorporate them into your regular being? How does, how does it make you grow? How does it turn you into, into hopefully a bigger and um, more uh, empathetic person? Well, I mean, this book follows you from, you know, youth, uh, college, graduate school, marriage, babies. Um, and I want to talk about hamburgers. I don't want to get too far away from that. But for now, you know, in one essay, you're living in Grand Rapids, Michigan. But your book also includes Salt Lake City, uh, Portland, Oregon, Torrey, Utah. Um, I'm talking to you now from Flagstaff, Arizona. So how have you been sort of processed by place? It's such a great question. And, you know, it's something I really think about in terms of, you know, there's a, there's a degree of privilege in being able to move. There's also a degree, especially if you are, as I am, as, as you know, in academia, where you are uh, <laughs> invited, invited to bloom where you are planted. And um, if you're and, lucky, yeah, <laughs> exactly. And that, you know, that, some of those moves were were by choice, but most of them were by this dream I had of, of being a writer and being a professor. And so, you know, I went to Portland uh, right after I graduated from high school at Brighton High. Um, I was 17 year old, years old and I wanted to get the heck out of Salt Lake. Um, and then when I, uh, I stayed for a few years after because I did love Portland, when I went to graduate school, the the few programs that I applied to were, you know, all, all over the place. But the one that was that was one of the better ones that that exist in the country is at the University of Utah. And so I came back to Salt Lake and fell in love with Salt Lake in a way that I don't. I think it's hard to do if you don't leave and come hmm. back. But I, you know, Salt Lake was was definitely changing. Salt Lake City had become much more progressive. The group of people I went to graduate school with, my professors at the U, where every, everything was incredible. My mom and my sisters were there. It's like everything came together. And then eventually they make you graduate and get a job. So I left, I left for Grand Rapids um, to teach at Grand Valley uh, State University, which I also loved, you know? And I do think there's something about finding the small things in a place um, that, that sustain you but you know it's in terms of writing it's really i think in uh incumbent upon me to bring forth the most important things about that place or the unique things or the way that place can shape you and i try to stay open to that even though i've been in flagstaff now for 12 years so i think of you know thinking of place i also you know across my mind the work of foucault or althusser that that we are also prisoners of place um, but in your case, it seems more perhaps you are you are a prisoner or you've been processed by food or perhaps I should say by cooking. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I connect food to place pretty, pretty deeply. Right. Um, the sense of what can you grow in Flagstaff? Ah, 
not that many things. Uh, I work all summer trying to grow tomatoes. This, the, um, you are obsessed with tomatoes in the book. I have a tomato problem because literally you plant tomatoes here, maybe, maybe on Memorial Day. And it really, maybe, maybe it will stay warm enough until October when they finally turn red. <laughs> you need a greenhouse. Like, it's so cold at night. You know, the daytime's fine, but it's it's the night temperatures that really dip and, and prohibit some of that growth. But you know, the, the cooking and, uh, and and gardening to me is how you dig into the community. You know, uh, one of the reasons I, I cook so much is to have people over for dinner and to, you know, talk about <laughs> the difficulties of growing tomatoes in Flagstaff. I feel, especially if you do move a lot, that the fastest way to making new friends and to be building a community is is through food. And it's really, you know, as, as my daughter said to me, you know, she's older now than she is in the book, but she said, well, mom, you know, food is just your love language and that's how mm. you, you express yourself. And it, it clicked for me that that, you know, that sometimes I don't have to talk so much. <laughs> sometimes I can just cook. <laughs> your book includes a few recipes, um, I loved at the end, you have a whole list of sort of pandemic meals that you cooked for, what, two or three months. You know, your book is what's often called braided essays. And to me, that's also part of your process. You know, you braid together near the near the beginning, one of the pieces braids together the permanence of marriage, well, the hoped for permanence of marriage. Um, but you also then braid in feeding wedding guests prime rib or feeding them shrimp, which are, of course, classic wedding foods, but both of those are at threat due to climate change. So you braid together this notion of permanence of marriage, but the temporality of what we feed people. Um, and then you also braid together pregnancy and botulism. I had to read that twice. Um, <laughs> so tell me about that part of your sort of process that how you like to bring together and and braid together these disparate notions and your essays do that throughout they go back and forth from here to there it's very engaging i found thanks thanks for saying so nick part of my process is you know i come from a poetry background and uh jackie oshiro at the university of utah taught us sonnets and she taught them hard and she taught them well there's something about the braided essay that provides a very firm structure around which one can spin one's ideas. And so when I think of things like the difficulty of, of talking about food, especially when you're talking about meat and you're talking about choice and you're talking about um, privilege and individualism and you know, anything that, that uh, connects with our you know, American ways, that to go back and forth between a fact-based story and the repercussions or the personal uh, version or the anecdotal evidence, uh, and then returning to the fact-based story and then moving on to that anecdote or that narrative. What that does to, for me is it makes it so I don't end up sounding particularly preachy, you know, don't eat meat or do eat meat or, you know, uh, the shrimp will save your marriage. I try really hard to, <laughs> to push, push those ideas as far out as I can for myself to process those ideas, but also so the reader, you know, is can engage and and make their own connections without, again, me coming down as terribly didactic. I really want to think about these things and what makes us 
you know, for me, I mean, we, we try not to eat red meat very often at my house, but we do, you know, once or twice a month. And, you know, what does that mean to be as environmentalists to be that hypocritical? And I want to think about that. I want to think about why we make the choices we do, even though we know they're not necessarily the right choice, or maybe they're the right choice in some circumstances, even though you know all the repercussions surrounding them. So, you know, it's, it's, I try, the part of the process of the braided essay is to reveal those complications without making it feel like too, too heavy of a burden. You know, I try to keep it um, light as well. And one of the nice things about going back and forth is you have space in between the essay for that lightness. It's that intense crucible-like focus Maybe it's getting out of the intensity that, that leads to the humor. You're like, well, I can't stay in this hot spot for too long. I better get out of here. But I love that there is the opportunity in some books for, for there to be bleakness and depression and, and hard circumstances, and then a way to, to get out of those and a way to literally laugh about them. So you do have an, you do have an essay called On Anger. In a way, your, your anger is sort of covered by the humor, or perhaps if you let yourself get pissed off, you'd really get pissed off. Um, and in that essay on anger, you do kind of make light and it's almost kind of funny because you're writing about all those moms and dads SUV engines that are thump, 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 thumping away in school parking lots. Um, is that conscious for you that you're trying to keep it light with humor so that you just don't get so dark and angry because it's so easy these days. I wonder. I, yeah, and I don't know. I don't know how else to engage with climate change. I mean, I don't know if it's the most psychologically healthy approach is to find to find some humor in it. Again, I don't want to find humor across the board in in the situation. But if I really were to get as as angry as I think we should all be about, mm -hmm. you know, big SUVs chugging out uh, 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 carbon with sitting in line to pick up their kids for school, um, or the number of plastic bottles you find in the forest when you're on a hike, or uh, the lack, the real problem, right, is the lack of corporations engaging in uh, working on trying to change any of this and to take any responsibility. These, you know, you, you could become, I think, so angry that you become paralyzed. And one of the things that humor does, like like any kind of lightness, like any kind of lubricant, is it, it makes it possible to go on. And being possible to go on allows me to, you know, talk to people a little bit about their idling situation in a funny way, right? Like, you can't knock on somebody's window and tell them to uh, turn their car off for fear you will get, um, uh, well, depending shot. on the shot. Yeah. <laughs> uh -huh. um, but, but uh, you know, you feel like I could in a conversation in uh, at a party or something, bring it up. And if you happen to be an idler, perhaps you'll say, oh, I don't need to be contributing 20 pounds per minute of carbon dioxide to the atmosphere. Um, I can turn my car up. It won't, it, it won't kill me. I won't freeze to that. Good point. So what's the beef with hamburgers? Um, you circle around beef burgers, veggie burgers, impossible burgers, cheeseburgers, um, beginning, middle and end of this book. You have a thing about burgers. Um, it's, it's almost kind of fun. I keep as I was reading, it's like, how soon till burgers are back? 
you know, I'm, I'm working on a novel and the whole, the whole novel is about McDonald's and their burgers. Huh. They're, they're one to 10 burgers. You know, I mean, burgers are probably, you know, they're ubiquitous in the United States. Yeah. It's hard to get through a day without seeing, seeing a hamburger. And I just, I find it fascinating. I find my, my son who's, who's 11 now, he, uh, now he's, he's given up red meat except for hamburgers. There's something about the easiness of burgers that's, that is, you know, complicated, um, it, it, it is, I'm sorry, it's not complicated. It's the easiness of burgers that makes you not have to think about the complications of eating meat. You know, eating a steak, you have to get a fork and a knife and you actually have to do some of the, the business. A burger is covered in bun and lettuce and cheese. It is hiding the meat, the meatiness, right? Um, I'm really excited for this world called lab meat when we will not be... Uh, killing animals to to eat them but i also know that they're that maybe it's an addiction maybe it's a uh maybe it's a way of claiming one's individual rights but burgers themselves i i think are the signature food for americans and also probably the signature food we're going to have to give up or grapple with or eat in a new way if we're going to make it um past or through climate change in any sort of survivable way. This is Radioactive. This is Nick Burns talking with Nicole Walker about her new book of braided essays, Processed Meats, Essays on Food, Flesh, and Navigating Disaster. Nicole, when we come back from a quick break, I want to ask you about swine flu and eating more bacon, because that was probably the funniest bit in the book. But we do need to take a quick break, and I think for a song, Cab Calloway, Everybody eats when they come to my house. We'll be right back. Have a banana, Hannah. Try the salami, Tommy. Give it the gravy, Davy. Everybody eats when they come to my house. Try a tomato plate, too. Here's cacciatore, Dory. Taste the bologna, Tony. Everybody eats when they come to my house. I fix your favorite dishes. We can all help reduce Utah's drought. Fix leaks around the house, run full loads in the washer and dishwasher, take shorter showers and hold off on watering landscapes. Reservoirs are low and wildfire risk is high. So let's all do what we can to save water. More information at drought.utah.gov. This is your Community Connection on KRCL-FM 90.9. I am Nick Burns, talking with the author of Processed Meats, Essays on Food, Flesh, and Navigating Disaster. Nicole Walker, thanks. We were talking about burgers before the great, whether they are impossible burgers or veggie burgers. And, and in the book, you do talk about, gee, I've got to make a beef burger for that person, but this person will only eat a veggie. But I want to ask about swine flu and pork, um, because that to me seems like the funniest piece in the book. But I wonder if underneath that, that maybe you weren't the angriest at that point. Really interesting uh insight into the book, Nick. I think that, you know, there there is a time, I feel like, when my kids finally were getting older and I was maybe not moving around as much and settling down. And maybe I was finding a way to, to write about climate change and the environment by being funny, you know, that I was maybe embracing it and giving up some of the really 
deep frustrations. I was also maybe able to channel my a lot of that frustration into the governor of Arizona, to whom I write a letter a week since uh, March of oh. 2015, um, get, trying to get him to restore funding to, to education. So maybe I was like channeling all that business ah. that way. <laughs> Could I open myself up to, to talking about, you know, talking about the... Uh, beef industry, the pork industry, the the uh, way that we can process vaccines um, really quickly. I was reading the other day that it took 71 years to make the H1N1 vaccine. And in my book, I say, oh, but we made it so quickly. But that's because the H1N1 that, uh, virus is just so similar to the influenza vaccine that it was, you know, we just had to adapt uh, the, the flu vaccine for the H1N1. Right. And, COVID is really the miracle, the miracle vaccine, because with its, you know, RNA manufacturing, that it is, it is a new, it's a new kind of vaccine, but still, so in this, in the, in that essay, I'm, I'm pregnant with my son, Max, and Zoe is, um, is just four years old and I am doing whatever I can to get this H1N1 vaccine because they were limited right at the beginning. And I'm like, well, if I can't get the vaccine, I know I will do some sort of homeopathy and eat more bacon and eat more pork chops. And it wasn't, you know, again, I'm not, I'm not being uh, literal here. It's pretty figurative, but there was uh, the weird connections we make between how science works, between how we get over our guilt, uh, how we ex how we rationalize our our ridiculous choices, that essay tries to tries to engage with all of those those. Emotions. Oh, and, I mean, and a lot of people don't have the ability or don't take the time to be introspective like that, right? Which is what you're doing in these essays when you're going from here to there. Um, you mentioned your kids who are now older, who are now teens and tweens, and and your your book. I, I must admit, I read it chronologically. It reads like an autobiography, right? It starts back and you talk about becoming pregnant or not and on and on and on. But you also have this focus nearer the end of the book as, as, as your kids are a little bit older that you don't want to be a, quote, nutter mother. Um, you don't want to be one of those crazy moms. Um, so there's a lot of self-analysis there. Um, and again, I'm going to go back to pork, so I apologies to all the vegetarians, but there's this thing about pig heads, and then I think about you being pig-headed, um, and I found that kind of funny. If, if you're living in our world where you spend way too much time watching Top Chef and, and uh, <laughs> Chopped, uh, you, you become somewhat... Uh, inoculated against the horror of eating really weird things. Like on um, Chop the other day, they had pig spleen. You know, you're like, oh, okay, that's a thing people do, eat these pig heads. And yes, that that connection in that essay, you know, is 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 uh, intentional. When Max is not, won't take off his, uh, or he wants to wear his cowboy boots, but he's already wearing them. I also think the pig headedness grows, <laughs> you know, signals beyond that to say we, are pretty pig headed in the way that we, you know, the way that we eat meat, the way we think certain foods yeah. are, are edible, you know, or better parts of the, of the pork. And, you know, there's all those memes that go around Facebook that say, give yourself a point if you've tried all of these foods. And some people are like, I've only <laughs> had two of these. And I'm like, I've had 40, you know, there's that it's, it's sort of a, a competition toward, toward weirdness of, of foodness. And also, you know, the farm to tail move or the head to tail movement and the slow food movements. I think those are all really, um, I think they're really hopeful, though, in some ways, thinking about how 
if you eat ahead of a pig, you are not denying, unlike the hamburger, you're not denying that you're eating, you're eating an animal. Um, and that connects to me by with those people who grow heritage, heritage pigs. Um, and, you know, they only feed them acorns and they massage them all day. Like if we had a very different um, meat industry, that eating meat, I don't think would be as abhorrent as it is. It wouldn't be as um, as much a part of climate change as it is. Um, that if meat were eaten more sparingly, and if we made connections, not only with the animals, but with the farmers and the people who grow the acorns to feed those heritage pigs, you know, that's one of the flaws with, uh, with corporate farming is we don't we don't make connections. We the biggest connection we make is with the plastic coating on the styrofoam package at the grocery store. You're not doing anything. You're not making a community. Oh, but I've recycled the styrofoam. Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, you have. That's what they tell you on your bin. You're recycling that styrofoam. Yeah, that's what they tell you. So exactly. yeah. Processed meats. Um how conscious are you of the fact that you are in effect processing your kids as they grow up? So, so Zoe's just about finished the book, which is really awesome. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, she has yet to come in and yell at me or throw the book at me. I think there's a point in writing about your kids where, you know, especially when they're close to you and especially when the stories are generally charming and anecdotal, that that they are part of your world. They're part of your stories. But, you know, I write about them less and less the older they get. And mm-hmm. if I were to write about them, I would get their permission. Uh, my first book, uh, Quench Your Thirst with Salt, came out a few years ago. And uh, my mom it features is featured in it quite a bit. And so one of the ways that I navigated that space was to ask her to proofread it for me. So she could read it as that with that critical eye and not necessarily have to engage with every single emotion that that uh, that the populated the pages. And that seemed to work well. It made me feel like she was a partner in the in the writing of the book more than the subject. And I think that's what people really don't like is that to be the subject or to be the, you know, investigative moment, uh, the the drama. You want to be like if you're in a book and you're featured, you want to be part of that person's lives, but not subject to their to their analysis. It takes you all the way to the end of processed meats to get into sex. So um, thank you, because I figured that would be coming somewhere in the book, um, because there's sort of a meatiness and an animalness to sex. But 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 truly, truly, um, sex and lengua tacos, um, really. <laughs> You're going to have to take me through that, because, you know, I thought the swine flu bit was funny, but... There's this whole, like I said, braided essays, and you're going back and forth between sex and tongue tacos. Um, how natural was that for you to write that one? Yeah, too, too, too easy, possibly. Um, <laughs> You know, puns puns are a staple in my uh, family. My sister Paige is the punniest of us all and can whip them out every 10 seconds. You know, the lengua tacos and connecting to language and then t- connecting to, um, t- to sex and uh, just the word lengua was yes. fascinating enough. Um, sometimes <laughs> I'll give myself a poetry prompt and I'll say, just open the dictionary, pick a word and write a poem about that. This is this this essay is the or this is the uh, the prose version of that 
investigation into a particular word, a lengua or a lingua. And it was just so fun to write. And I apologize to everyone. Oh, <laughs> Unless well, I don't think you need to apologize because it's actually a pretty fun, a pretty fun read. Well, there's a lot more I could talk about. I know we can't keep you all day, but I would like to ask you if there's a short piece you'd like to read before we wrap up and remind folks about your reading tomorrow. That sounds great. Why don't I read uh, a little bit from Amalgamated Products Are Us, just because it focuses primarily on hamburger. I'll yes, just please. Yeah, I'll just read this first paragraph. 100% Canadian beef in your hamburger is not the same as 100% American beef. I had this problem in Germany and England too. In Canada, at Niagara Falls, a day before the wedding, I ordered a hamburger. I should have known better by then to order a hamburger outside of my home country. The hamburger lay flat on the bun as if it were a whole piece of meat rather than of a piece, like a fine knit rather than an open weave, like it had been pressed and attached or cut from the whole cloth of a bolt of hamburger fabric. American hamburgers retain the grind, keep the fibers stretched. In the American hamburger, the cow is reduced to its smallest quantity. It is pea-sized steak showcasing the fundamental level of meat stitched together loosely. The seam is made of dissolvable, dissolvable fat. American hamburgers, you can eat them with just your teeth. The meat falls apart right in your mouth. Thank you. The author is Nicole Walker. The book is Processed Meats, Essays on Food, Flesh, and navigating disaster. Nicole Walker, you will be doing a virtual reading tomorrow, the 29th, that's at 6 p.m., virtually with King's English. And I understand you have some other readings coming up too that folks should know about. That's right. So tomorrow, tomorrow's uh, re reading and conversation is with Todd Davies at the King's English, and it's sponsored by Patagonia. So it's very, it feels very, oh, uh, cool. Yeah, it feels very naturific, and it should be a really great conversation. And then I really wanted to mention on May third, Tory House Press is celebrating its ten-year anniversary, um, and that'll be virtual again uh, at seven p.m. on May third. That's this coming Monday. And then on June 5th, I get to do a in-person reading in Torrey, Utah uh, at 7.30 p.m. for the Entrada Institute. And Torrey House will be there. And that should be such, such a delight. We'll be outside. Uh, it won't be snowing. We're pretty sure. Pretty sure. Uh, yeah, pretty sure. We 95% sure. <laughs> so you mentioned the novel. What else are you working on coming up ahead? Uh, you know, you mentioned you mentioned uh, talking about place. So I'm really investigating uh, this idea of who gets to move uh, and thinking deeply about people who have been forced off their land because, you know, we've, in Flagstaff, we live on the border of the Navajo Reservation and the Hopi Mesas. And these people uh, have been forced off their lands and have been fortunate enough to return to them, unlike a lot of other um indigenous people thinking about me being able to move where I want to move or sometimes being being invited to, <laughs> to bloom where I planted as I mentioned so you kind of in your early questions prompted what that next book is about oh. thanks well maybe you can come back we can talk again 
I would love that, Nick. This has been so fantastic. Oh, thank you. The author is, and thank you for taking time, Nicole Walker. The book is Processed Meats, Essays on Food, Flesh, and Navigating Disaster. It's out now. It's been out since March. Uh, the reading is, is tomorrow, the 29th, 6 p.m., virtually through King's English and other events upcoming. Nicole, thank you. Thank you again so much. What a great, great opportunity to talk with you. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks. And that's our show. Great interview, Nick Burns. Oh, thank you. Always my pleasure talking with authors about their creations, how they've uh, birthed an elephant, if you will, to write a book. Always a pleasure. Uh, and again, everything from Tory House Press is truly a pleasure to read. Another great show. So good to see you again, my friend. I'm Laura Jones. Nice to see you too. It's still virtual, but hey, we're knocking these out every weeknight. People can tune in at 6 p.m. I'm Nick Burns and up next, Democracy Now! Support for KRCL comes from the Joan Trumpauer Mulholland Foundation, ending racism through education. Films, books, and materials for the classroom and organizations are available online at jtmfoundation.org.